reading from Romans chapter 9. Uh, anyone need a Bible? Colin's got some up there. Uh, you may need to look up a few things I'm thinking today. Romans chapter 9 uh, from verse 10. It's talking about Rebecca, who you recall Abraham and Sarah had Rebecca, uh, who married Isaac, and they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Picking up from verse 10. But Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Thanks for reading that, Alan. Uh, well, maybe this week, more than others, you'll be relishing a question time, or I might be dreading it. We'll see how we go. Uh, but we do, we do have a, a, a question time whenever we've got timing. Um, so if you do have a question that pops, pops up, uh, you can text it through. Uh, so I'll, if I see you with your phone, I'll assume you're either reading your Bible or texting me. Don't worry, I've got my phone on uh, aeroplane mode. Nice little reminder, maybe check that yours is on silent too, uh, but I'll check those uh, in question time. Or you can just ask in person uh, and, and we'll head on in. Uh, we are, of course, in our uh, Roman series, uh, working through the Book of Romans. Um, uh, we're taking that right the way through to Christmas this year. And we thought, well, no, we'll, we'll have a breather this week. Uh, from Romans for more of Romans. Uh, we came to chapter 9 and thought there is so much in here and this is such a uh, complicated and often emotional subject to deal with. Uh, let's, let's just take a week to, 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 di to dig into it and next week we're going to preach Romans 9 again uh, but, but, but hopefully 
some of our questions will have been answered. Uh, no, no promises, but we'll see how we go. Uh, but there are, some, uh, there are some things in life that pop up that just create a whole lot of questions, don't they? Uh, you know, I, I might say something to you uh, that just creates a whole bunch of questions. Like if I say to you, oh, well, well, that's my Christmas room. You're going, you're what? Well, what's, a, what's a Christmas room and why do you have one? You know, you say, so you'll hear a statement, you go, what, what's going on with that? What, why do you have one of these? What is it? Uh, and there's some things that just come up. And Romans chapter 9, I think, is one of those places where, where we just have all these things pop up uh, and, and they just create questions. It almost creates more questions than it answers, especially in our culture. Uh, in our culture, when we have an understanding of this thing called free will. I don't know if any of you watched the, uh, the movie Bruce Almighty. Uh, it's a bit of a laugh. Jim Carrey uh, gets God's powers... Uh, and uh, there's only two rules that God, Morgan Freeman, gives Jim Carrey. Uh, he says, you can't make someone love you. Yeah, okay, we know that rule, that's out of Aladdin. You know, the other rule, you can't mess with free will. That's the only two rules. So we go, okay, free will. What's going on with that? Uh, the idea of choice. And when we read in chapters like Romans 8 and 9, this word predestination, pretty simple word, Pre, before, destination, that God destines, determines, ordains. It's, it's all wrapped up in that word. Events before the fact. Pre, before they happen, God, it's just a word, it's there. You can't say, you know, does the Bible talk about predestination? Yeah, the, word, the word's all the way through here. What's going on? This idea of God's sovereignty, that is his, his complete and absolute power being God. The idea that, as we just read, God will choose some and not choose others. It creates some really big questions, doesn't it? Well, unless you just kind of push it all down and go, no, I can't think about that. I won't think about that. It creates some questions. And, and often it will create accusations, questions maybe about God's character. Uh, and if, if this, these, this topic or these chapters have raised some questions or even some accusations in your mind, don't worry, you're, you're not the first. We aren't the first to ask these questions. Uh, Paul is aware, the, the, the guy who under God wrote this letter of Romans to the church in Rome, God inspired him to write it. Paul's aware that this creates questions and so he, he raises them for us. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Now, there's a question. There's an accusation. Yeah, come on, God. If you choose some and not others, are you unjust? If you predestine some to be in your family and others not to, is God unjust? It's a big question. Thanks, thanks Paul. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Uh, a few verses later, one of you will say to me, well, why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, I, 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 get, the, I get your questions, guys. If, if what I'm saying is true, if God decrees whose heart will respond to him and whose heart won't, why are we blamed? If God is sovereign, if God predestines all things, why does he still blame us? That doesn't make sense. How, how does that work? It's a, it's a real question. Now, today, we are going to look at what God does. 
and we are going to ask about God's freedom. I think that's what a whole lot of this comes down to. God's freedom, as in not the freedom God gives to us, but is God free to do what he wants? So we're going to dig into some of that. And first we're going to see, well, we're going to say, well, what does the Bible actually say? Uh, you're not here. I hope to hear what I've got to say. I don't have much to say. Uh, I'm just a human. I'm a pastor. I read God's word. I love it. I try and understand it and we communicate it. But what does the Bible actually say about this before we try and understand it? Uh, we will ask, well, what about free will? Where does that fit in? Uh, what about God's desire? And, and that is, and we'll go there in 1 Timothy, God's desire for all people to be saved. And we'll go where to from here. But before we jump in, I'm going to pray again. I think uh, we're going to need God's help in this one. Please join me. Father God, we, we thank you that you do long to be known, that you aren't a God for, of, of confusion, but a God of clarity. Yeah, you're a God of truth. And you're a God who works in a way that as we know you better, we can love and honour you more. So we pray that as we open up the Bible today, I pray that I would speak clearly and faithfully, as Mal prayed, gently and boldly. And I pray that we will see clearly, more clearly, who you are, how you act, and that that will be a delight to us, that it will cause us to love you more and give us great confidence. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, what does the Bible actually say? Uh, well, uh, hold on to your hats because we are going to whiz through a whole bunch of different things. I'm not going to exegete every passage, give you the context. Uh, if you did manage to score a handout, we're a bit short today. I can print you one other otherwise. Um, we've got all the Bible references I've used at the bottom of them. You can go and look them up later. Um, so I'm not trying to uh, pull a fast one on you by skimming through them. But just we're saying, well, what does the Bible say about this? Is it just one passage that mentions it offhand? What does the Bible actually say? Uh, well, first of all, last week we got to dig into this bit as Alan was preaching. Uh, Romans 8.28, we know, Paul writes, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Yeah, that, that's, that's big, isn't it? In all things, as we dug into it, in the good days and in the bad days, in joy and in suffering, in all things, God is working. It's not God just uses it, he works it. He's active. Uh, but it's not just in the non-salvation things of life, like, you know, in our cars and our jobs and our relationships. It's specifically in salvation. That's where Paul went next. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, down to verse 30. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Uh, God works. God chooses. He, he not only foreknows, he knows us even before we've been imagined, but he predestines. It's not just a foreknowledge. Uh, it's not just foretelling. It's not just knowing what's going to happen and then proving my power by telling you what's going to happen. It's more than that. It's a predestining, a calling. They're, they're active. And then an effective justification and glorification. It's more than just knowing what's going to happen. A choosing, if you like. And if you're wondering, I didn't see that word choose there. Well, Jesus used it in John 15. He's talking to the disciples. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Uh, and I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. We're going, okay, well, we, we know Jesus chose the disciples. Does that mean he's natural calling of them? No, well, it's, 
speaking to his disciples, but it goes much more broadly than just the disciples. It carries to all Christians, all people who follow Jesus. And I'm just going to flick through a few here. Romans 8.33, we looked at it. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Ephesians 1.11, in him we were also, that's Christians, chosen having been predestined. Colossians 1.27, to them God has chosen. Colossians 3, therefore as God's chosen people. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. John chapter 6, uh, well, we won't go to John chapter 6 there, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, so what's going on there? We clearly, 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 God is the one who chooses us. God is the one who looks down, looks into us and, and chooses, chooses. But is this just like, I don't know, I chose Lucy, my wife. I looked around and I said, who do I want to marry? Ah, oh, I, I choose you. Well, what happened at that point? Well, Lucy had a choice, didn't she? You know, so my choosing, is, is, is that how God chooses? That he looks around, just like picking a spouse? I choose you, will you marry me? And we go, well, now it's up to us is that's what's happening with this choosing. She can come or not. Like I can, you know, my children are running away from me and I can call them, come back here. They have an option at that point, don't they? You know, so my calling of them back sometimes is effective, sometimes. Is, is that what is going on here? Does God choose and call in the way that we do? No, it's really quite different. Have a look in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus is, is talking about this, this process uh, and it's quite profound. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All those the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. You see this choosing that God does, this calling? It's not the same way that we do. It's not an invitation uh, that we can accept or not. This is God choosing, not a human. God choosing, God calling. All those, Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. That should give us great confidence. No one gets lost in the wash. But it's different to our choosing. When God chooses, when he calls, he does so with power. He's God. And it goes the other way too. Just a few verses later, Jesus says it explicitly in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up on the last day. You, you can't really say it more, more plainly than that. Of all the people on the earth, no one can come to Jesus, can come and say, I want to be in your family. No one can choose Jesus, can believe in him and find salvation in him. No one can do that unless the Father draws them. Unless God does something, unless God is active, drawing, enabling, bringing them in. Why, why would God do it this way? Why would God set it up so that we are drawn, so that we need him to do something for us to be able to come? 
Why would God set it up in such a way that he is the one who chooses and draws, not just throwing out an offer and leaving it us to decide without interference? Why would he do that? Well, the Bible comes back to this again and again and again. The Bible says it's because so that our salvation is by grace. That word grace, undeserved generosity. God does the choosing so that we'll, we'll, it'll be by grace. Have a look there in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. faith. And this is not from yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that if, if any part of our salvation was up to us, we would have reason to boast. Even if it was just the faith. Say, look, look, God, I know I didn't earn it. I know I didn't do anything to earn my salvation. I know it's not by works, but at least I had faith. At least I had faith. At least I had faith. Those other people didn't have faith, but I had faith. No. Paul says, even, even this is from God. So that no one can boast. So it is by grace. Maybe it's even more explicit in Romans 9, which we just read, that, that account of Jacob and Esau. We'll read it again from verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, so nothing, nothing separating them, they're twins. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, that is Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Did you pick up the two purpose statements there? The two reasons Paul gave on why God chose even before the twins were born? Uh, the first in verse 11, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. That's the first reason. So that God's purpose in election might stand. It's got nothing to do with these twins and what they do. It's, it's about God and his choosing. And then right there at the end, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. Literally, human willing or running. They're the things you can do as a human, isn't it? You can act, you can run, or you can will, you can desire, you can want. So that it doesn't depend on your desires or your efforts, your works or your will. Doesn't depend on that. But on God's mercy. That's why God does it this way. Doesn't just leave it up to us. Because if he left it up to us, oh well, I, I did something that my family haven't done. My friends haven't done. Well, I was presented with a choice and I could see that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's not the way it works. It's not saying, oh, I was presented with salvation and I got to see how beautiful Jesus is. Or I was so humble. I'm boasting again, isn't it? It's got nothing to do with human willing or effort. But on God's mercy, 
So it's by grace, by faith, so that we have nothing to boast about. So that's just what the Bible says, pretty plainly, pretty clearly. But then we've got to ask, don't we? Well, what about free will? If God chooses with power, unlike the way we choose, if God chooses with power or authority, if no one can come to him unless he draws them, and if all who are given to Jesus will come to him, what about free will? How does that fit in? Well, it all depends on what we mean by free will. You go through the Bible, jump, jump on Bible Gateway and, and search free will, you're not going to find it. The, the phrase isn't there. Uh, so we've got to figure out, okay, are we actually talking about the same thing? Uh, our, our culture has its own particular idea about what we mean by free will. Here's a, here's a definition that I, I, I pulled up that I think wraps up what I think we normally think of when we, when we hear the term free will. Uh, the power or the supposed power or capacity of humans to make decisions or perform actions independently of any prior event or state of the universe. So that's free will. So the power of humans, of us, to make a decision or make an act independent of something that happened before or what's going on. And if someone beforehand told me, well, you must do this, well, I'm not actually free. Independent of anything that's been said, any other constraints, that I ultimately get to make this choice. That's the culture's idea of free will. That, yeah, God, you know, he, he might be able to fiddle around the edges. He might be able to put situations in your life that make you more or less likely to make a decision, but he can't make that decision for you. He can't touch your will. He can just fiddle around the edges. And it's just not a biblical idea. But the Bible does say choose. The Bible does invite humans to choose. Um, here's just one of the places we get it. In Deuteronomy 30, it's one of the famous ones. Uh, God's talking through his prophets and he says, this is what I want you to say. He says, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. There's this invitation to choose and again and again and again through the New Testament especially is the invitation to believe, the command to believe, which implies, it says that we have a choice. So what's going on there? What is going on? Do we have a choice or don't we have a choice? We're called to believe, we're called to choose. What choices are we free to make? Because I think that's ultimately what it gets down to. It says, I want to be free to make whatever choice I want. Well, what choice are we actually free to make as humans? Well, I think in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, uh, it's a good place to park. So we're going to park there for a moment and read from Ephesians 2 verse 1. Uh, and, and Paul digs into this a little bit. He talks about, I think, the choices that we are free to make and the choices that we can't make. Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you humans, that's for us, as for us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. But 
Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. When, when the Bible describes what we are like without Jesus, what we humans are like before coming to faith in Jesus, uh, we're described in two big ways, being slaves, slaves to sin and death, and being dead. The Bible says you are slaves and you are dead. You are by nature, outside of Christ, a dead slave. Now, if you're a slave or if you're dead, there's certain things you can't choose. You're constrained, you're bound. There's certain things that aren't available just as choices because of our nature. Now, we're not actually physically dead. We're not actually physically enslaved in chains. But what Paul's saying here is outside of Christ, we are enslaved. We are enslaved to our nature. We can't go against kind of who we are. Now, if you have a look on your handout, uh, if you manage to get one, on the back, I've popped up a couple of books if you want to do some more reading. Uh, one I've come across in the last few weeks, Scott Christensen, called What About Free Will? Uh, pretty, pretty helpful little title, isn't it? Uh, and, and I found that book really helpful. You can look it up right on Kindle or uh, wherever you like. Uh, but, but he says a, a, a couple of things that I think are really, really helpful. Uh, he helps us see uh, that, that we are bound by our nature. Just like a fish uh, in, a, in a lake is free to go wherever it wants, except out of the water can't fly but it's free to go wherever it wants uh, the fish is free to make choices within its nature the fish doesn't want to get out of the water why would it so it's free to do whatever it wants to do that is swim around in the water and we humans in our natural state are free but we cannot escape our nature we will not choose something that is contrary to what we want to what our nature is um, here's, here's one of the quotes he gives, it's just a little short one. He says, people, humans, always choose what they most want to do. Humans, people, always choose only what they most want to do. I think we trick ourselves sometimes thinking, you know, well, I, I'm doing this, but I, I really want to be doing this other thing. You know, I didn't want to hurt you. Well, maybe it was accidental, but uh, I didn't want to eat that piece of cheesecake. No, no, I really did. We, we, we will act in line with what we most want to do, with, with the way our nature and wills constrain us. See, human choices come from desires. That, that's how we choose what to do. Uh, a person does what we want to do. And these desires, they come from our nature. Just like my, my body when I go underwater does not want to breathe water in. It, it doesn't want to do it. It actually reacts against that. I don't want to breathe water in because my nature says don't breathe water, breathe air. My desire for air makes me choose to breathe air. A fish is the opposite. A fish's nature creates a desire uh, to get its oxygen through its gills. It's a, it's a different being. It's got a different nature. And we will always choose only what we want to do. Our action uh, comes from our souls, from our nature. 
we are actually constrained to act in line with our nature. And unfortunately for us, for us humans, our nature, the Bible says, is dead. Our nature is enslaved to sin and death and actually wants to be there. Our nature naturally produces sinful choices. And in order for a person to be able to perform righteous actions, for us to want good things, the Bible tells us we need a nature change. Naturally, as humans, we're not going to want God. We're not going to want righteousness and holiness because we're enslaved to sin, to death. To want God, to want righteousness, he is going to have to change us. God is going to need to make us alive in Christ. And when he does that, he changes our desires. He renews our minds. He gives us new hearts. He changes our nature, our desire, so that we will then choose him because it's in line with our new nature. The Bible says that without God doing that work in our hearts, we can't choose him. And when we do, when he does, we will come. We see examples of this all the way through, uh, especially the New Testament, Acts 16, uh, Lydia, uh, the dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. You see it there. When she heard God's message, uh, Paul's message, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She wasn't able to come before that, but God opened it, enabled her and drew her in. And we see that happening again and again and again through the New Testament. But it's still left with that question, how does it work that we're still held accountable for something that is in our nature? Well, that's where it comes to choice and accountability. There is this really interesting interaction between God predestining and our very real willingness to choose or reject him. There's kind of this um, two-way explanation for why people are eternally responsible for our choices. The first explanation is uh, to do with God's freedom, that God is free. He's allowed not to expend, extend his grace, his mercy, his generosity to some. He, he doesn't have to make that offer to everyone. He's free not to do that. The other is to do with, with our human sinful uh, desire to exercise our will and engage in deeds, in acts that are worthy of judgment. And the Bible pre presents it that those two things are going on at the same time. Uh, we, we see this, this love for sin come up a few places. comes up at the start of the Gospel of John. Uh, when uh, John's talking about Jesus coming to the world, this is the verdict he writes. Light, that is Jesus, has come into the world, but people love the light instead of the darkness because their deeds were evil. So people, we, we love it. We love it because that's according to our nature. We love being independent. We love rebelling against God. We love just doing our own thing, independent of God. We love the darkness. In Romans 8, at the start of that, uh, it picks this up. Those who uh, live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What we see as we look across the Bible is, is we freely, freely, voluntarily act in accordance with what we most desire. But outside of Christ, our desires all lead away from God. And it is only by an act of God's sovereign will that he transforms our hearts, that he gives us new desires, new loves, so that we can choose Jesus. Uh, God's uh, election and choosing of sinners, it's, it's not kind of coercion. It's not God sort of wrestling people into a van and taking them away. God, God doesn't save anyone against their will. Christians repent and believe they, they do say so voluntarily. But what happens is God changes our hearts so that he becomes irresistible. It's a word that sometimes we think, oh, hang on, I, I'm, I'm happy for God to show me his grace, his goodness, and then leave it for me uh, to decide whether I want to resist that or not. But irresistible, oh, that, that, that sounds a bit pushy. But what's going on here where we, we talk about God's irresistible calling is in the, in the best sense of the term. Here's, here's how Scott puts it. I think it's, it's quite helpful. What sinners find is that God's grace is irresistible in the very best sense of that term. Truly, tr people truly believe in Christ because they want to believe. They do so freely, voluntarily, without coercion. So, so when we use the word irresistible just in, in normal, thing, normal things, it's like if someone uh, bakes me a cheesecake, just a hint, one of my favourites. Uh, baked cheesecake, uh, blueberries, nice thin crust, uh, and, and I've decided I want to lose a little bit of weight, I want to get a bit fitter, but they've baked it and it's there on the bench and it's just, just irresistible. Now, now when I'm saying that, I haven't got the person who baked it for me behind me grabbing my arm and pushing my face into it. That, that's not irresistible, but it, it's just so beautiful and attractive and, and fragrant and fluffy and it's just irresistible. That's, that's what we're talking about here, that God, God, God gives us a new heart. We're not being coerced or dragged into his family when he's irresistible in his calling and his choosing. He allows us to see how good he is, how beautiful he is, how amazing he is, how irresistible his grace and mercy is in the very, very best sense of the term. God gives us this new nature so that what we desire most is him. And this third point and the last one, they're a bit shorter, but we'll get through it. What about God's desire for all to be saved? You, you might be familiar with this passage. It comes up uh, in second, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's talking about praying for the governors, for the authorities, for the kings, for the rulers. He says there in verse 3, this is good. Pray for them. It's good, it pleases God, our Saviour, uh, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I think sometimes we read a passage like this and go, aha, God can't choose some and not others because it says here that he desires all people to be saved. 
Well, before we do that, we've got to, we've got to look at the context. The first is the context that, that, that Paul's talking about praying for the government so that we have peace, so that the good news of Jesus might spread freely because well, God wants all people to be saved, not just a few, all people. So pray for peace. So we've got, we've got to look at the context. But the, the even more important thing is that it's talking about God's moral desires, not about his decrees. It's actually talking about his character, not his plan. I'll give you another verse to illustrate that. This is from Ezekiel, uh, and God's instructing Ezekiel, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Now, do you see the difference between a decree and a kind of desire? God, oh, I don't want the wicked to die. I don't want to destroy them. I don't want to bring judgment on them. But I will decree that they will die, that they will be judged for their wickedness if they do not flee to me in repentance and faith. There's, there's two very different things going on. It's not a decree. So what does thwart God's desire for all people to be saved? He, he, he wants all people to be saved, but clearly not all people are saved. That's self-evident. So what is it that stops God getting what he wants, crudely speaking? What, what stops God getting his desire for all to be saved? Is it that God is kind of helplessly wringing his hands? Oh, I wish it was different, but I, I can't save them. I desire them to be saved, but nothing I can do about it. We've got two options here, really. Is God constrained by our ultimate freedom? Does God wish that everyone was saved? Oh, I desire everyone to be saved, but hey, they've got, they're free. They're free. I, I can't mess with free will. So is God's desire constrained by our ultimate freedom, or are we constrained by God's ultimate freedom? That's ultimately the two choices we have. Why doesn't God get what he wants, his desire for all to be saved? Oh, 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 is he going, oh, I wish I could save them, but I can't because they're free? Or are we constrained? Does God decree something different? And that's where Paul takes us. He takes us to the freedom of God. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire and effort, but on God's mercy. The context of that statement is God revealing something about who he is. Is God unjust? And God responds with, you know what? I am free. I am free. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I've got no one twisting my arm. I have no constraints. God is free to choose to have mercy or choose to harden. To choose to have compassion or choose to withhold compassion. He is free. So where to from here? Well, there's a, there's a danger at this point. I think there's always a danger that we will put 
some other authority over God's word. Uh, you might have seen this square. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I don't expect you to remember that. Uh, but it, it's really an authority matrix. It, it's talking about, it's trying to visually show us where do you put your ultimate authority? Where do you go to for absolute truth? And you've got four options, scripture, tradition, experience, or reason. So scripture, the Bible, tradition, maybe the church or what you've been taught. Experience, what you, what you know to be true because of your personal experience or reason. So if experience is your ultimate authority, you'll say, look, I know the Bible says that, but I know what happened to me. I know my feelings. I know how I feel. You see what you've just done if you make that statement? I'm going to put experience above scripture. If reason is your ultimate authority, you say, look, I know the Bible says that, but it just doesn't make sense to me. That can't be true. That can't be true because it doesn't make sense. See what I've done? I've put my reason above scripture. So oh, I know the Bible says that, but I tell you what, the church, they've, they've taught me some other stuff. Tradition over scripture. I, I want to encourage us all to submit our reason and our experience to scripture. Uh, Alan went there last week. Our experience can be fallible. It can be not quite seeing things right. Our reasons, well, we're human. God isn't human. He's sovereign. Where will I submit? What will I make the ultimate? I want to be really clear here. You don't, you don't have to agree with me on everything. I hope that you don't agree with me on everything. In fact, because we're human, I'm human. And we don't have to understand everything that God says. I think we put that burden on ourselves, that we must completely understand everything that God says. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to understand God. But we do need to humbly submit to God. We are the clay. He is the potter. You see the vast difference? It's not even that we are the ant and he's the human. We are the clay. An inanimate lump of dirt. And he is the potter who designs intelligently for good. I'd encourage us, wherever we land, as we continue to wrestle with this, to hold on to three truths that the Bible keeps coming back to. The first is that God is powerful. He's not kind of sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, and, oh, I wish I could save that person, but... Can't do anything, can't muck with free will. Now, I don't think anyone actually believes this, and any Christian. We exhibit that when we pray, don't we? Do you pray for your unconverted friends or family? I hope so. What do you pray when you pray for them? Father, save them, change them, bring them into your family. Why bother praying to God if he's not powerful? Might as well pray to my friend, pray to my family member. Nothing God can do. They've got free will. No, God is, God is powerful. Hang on to that. But he's not just powerful. He's not a tyrant. He's good. He's good. He is the definition of good. Perfectly, ultimately, always good. But I don't want to leave it there because I think sometimes again, say, yeah, I know God's powerful. I know God's good. But maybe he's got good intentions, but he doesn't always make the right choice. <laughs> I don't know if you'd think that. God is also wise. 
He's powerful, he's good, he's wise, he knows what's best and he always does that. Why would you trust these things? Why would you trust that God is powerful and good and wise? We've always got to come back to Jesus, don't we? We've got to come back to the cross. Because it's the greatest display of God's wisdom, of his goodness, of his power to save. So there's another accusation throwing at, at God about his justice. But it wasn't to do with God not saving some people. It's to do with God saving anyone. Some, some, some person who's committed a great crime stands up and the judge says to them, they're forgiven. They get to walk out of here free. That, that's not good. That's not right. That's not just. And that's the accusation that's thrown against God when we sinners are forgiven. How is that okay? How is it okay that we are forgiven? That, that's where we, we go to in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, to defend that he is righteous. Because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. He is powerful, but not just powerful. He's good. He can be trusted. He is wise. And even if we don't understand it, we can entrust this to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to your word here on this very complex subject. And we struggle to wrap our heads around it, to understand how this all interacts, but we pray that you would give us peace we pray that you would help us in our hearts to ultimately trust you above all things to put what you say to us above our experience above our reason and when we wonder about what you are doing in this world and it causes us to ask oh god is this really the best way are you really doing this are you really just? We pray that we will look back to the cross, the greatest display of your love, of your wisdom, of your justice and powerful power to save people like us. Please give us confidence. Please help us settle. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I did promise a question time, so there we go. I'll turn my phone off airplane mode. See how many I get. You're allowed to ask in person as well. Mal's going to whiz around with a... Uh... I don't know if you noticed, I, was, um, I uh, got a notice from um, YouTube and I clicked it. I was so keen on uh, Liam's sermon that I was, I was playing in the background. Oh, listen. A second. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Louise. Um, I think a common criticism of Christianity that I've heard is that why would a loving God send anyone to hell? Mm. And I always thought that, you know, a reasonable response to that was, oh, well, God doesn't choose to send anyone to hell. He invites us all and people mm. make those choices. Um, so this concept of predestination sort of seems to be not supporting that response. Mm. Um, and I guess I've always kind of liked to think that everyone would have the chance um, before they die 
to mm. have the cheesecake in front of them and yeah, yeah. make that choice. And eat it or not. Eat yeah, it or not yeah. kind of thing. And so, yeah. I mean, what... Obviously, there's the... there's We can't know the mind of God and we can't mm. know God's justice is different to, I guess, our sense of justice. Yeah. But how do we sort of respond, I guess, to that, to say, you know, we talked a lot about those who are chosen. What about those who are not chosen? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And that's that's the big question, isn't it? I think uh, we, we are quicker to accept that God saves with authority, but then to, oh, doesn't save on the other, that's hard. And and Paul goes there, doesn't he, in Romans 9. Um, I'll just pull up that reference again. Um, yeah, as, he, as he's talking about um, the mercy that he has so i think paul asked the exact question you're asking one of you will say to me then why does god still blame us for who is able to resist his will that's the question isn't it well hang on how how can god send people to hell how can they be punished if no one can resist his will why are we still blame now now the first thing i want to say there is the fact that paul raises that question says that we have understood his argument properly Paul is saying God's will is irresistible. He wouldn't have to ask that question uh, if, if that hadn't come up. So, so that's the first thing to say, okay, before we wrestle kind of emotionally and how to process and explain this, just to come back, yeah, yeah, the Bible does say this. God says before Jacob and Esau, oh, okay, before they were born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before they were born, before they had choice or act, okay. That's been said, how, how do we understand that? How do we explain it? Well, I think it's really interesting where Paul goes, he actually doesn't try and explain it. He says, for who, well, I'll read it. Who are you, human being, to talk back to God? I don't think he says that with a yell. I don't think he's pointing and shouting at that point. Because, and in the context in this passage, he's actually weeping for his fellow Israelites. We'll look at that next week. He, 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 he is so torn up about his cousins, his family members, his, his fellow Israelites who have rejected Jesus, that he actually says, if it was possible, I'd give up my salvation if it would save them. He, he's, he's got this angst that maybe, maybe parents might feel for their kids that says, oh, I'd do anything for them. So, so he's not shouting here. He's not cold and hard and... Oh, like it all lumber he's saying be very careful when we start waving our fists at god and saying yeah that's not fair so i think that's the first thing um, is to come back and say god is god and chooses who he will and he's allowed to do that so that's that's where paul goes um i think there's some other other stuff to say i, I think that the first thing uh, that I always, I think, has been really helpful in me is, um, and I think Alan might have said it last week, and maybe just quietly to me, there will be no one on Judgment Day who says that's not fair. So, so in this life, we are constrained by our human knowledge, by what we can see and understand. And we look at things and go, oh, how can that be fair? How can that be right? How can that be just? But the Bible's really clear that what we now see in part, we will see in full. That there'll be no one on the judgment day, no one on the judgment day saying this is unjust. 
because God is perfectly just and all he does and decrees is just. We might not understand it now, but it, it will be absolutely and, and totally just. Um, yeah, and, and I, I, I think that's, yeah, it's, it's a pretty hard one. But yeah, we, we, we do act in accordance with our wishes. We, as John says in John chapter 1, we love the darkness. Even if we haven't had the transformation that makes us want to love God, we still love the darkness. It's in line with our nature. Pretty hard, not very winsome, pretty pretty tricky one, yeah. Hmm. So I've got two questions. Sue, thank you. The first one was just to clarify something I read, and that was Adam as a representation of mankind when he sinned, all mankind fell into hell, and so we're all there anyway, wallowing in sin, and God chooses to pull people from hell. And I just wanted to clarify if that's a quick, correct understanding. So is that, is that at, the, at the fall with Adam? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, um, yeah, b before, before Adam sinned, individually and in a way on behalf of all humanity, that was really significant. Before that, Adam and Eve actually had the cheesecake in front of them and could choose to eat it or not. They actually did have a choice to sin or not to sin. It was possible to do either. And they sinned. Since then, all humans have got that contaminated nature from being descended from Adam. And that removed our ability not to sin. We just have a nature. When we're regenerate, so that's step one, pre-fall, pre choose to do either. Step two, we can't not sin. Then, for some, God gives a new heart. And we can now do either. So, because that's the thing, Christians still sin, right? You know, uh, if you're a sinless Christian, come see me, I'd like some tips. Um, but but we're not there yet. So once we're regenerate, we, we get taken back in a way to the, the pre-fall state where we can, we can actually choose God because he gives us a new heart that delights in him. But, oh, we're still in this body of flesh and we get drawn back into it. There's a fourth step, which is the new creation where we won't be able to sin. Not because we want to and we'll be trying to and God's stopping us, but because that desire to sin will be gone. Because we won't be in this body of flesh, there'll be no remnant left over and we just won't ever want to. So in that way, we won't be able to because our nature, it's like trying to breathe underwater, you just won't be able to do it because we'll be fully redeemed. Does that help? Yes, yes, that's fine. It's just that people say God sends man to hell. He doesn't. He does. How? He, he, he chooses to sin. Yes. And that is how you end up in hell. No, that, that man, man, humans choose to rebel against God and, and sin uh, in, in line with the nature that we're, we're entrapped in. And God decrees that the punishment for that is hell. So God does, yeah, yeah it's, it's not just... It, We've got, we've got to be careful not to try and so protect God. So sometimes I think we, we want to defend God's righteousness. So we'll, oh, he, God doesn't have anything to do with hell. I don't know who made hell. It's, it's just over there, but people kind of stumble into that on their own. No, that's not the way the Bible... This is God's righteous judgment poured out justly. Yeah. Okay, and God hating Esau, is that hate as we understand it? Uh, I, long, long answer to that. How do we understand it? Um, 
we read, we got to read in, in, in line with, uh, Esau got in, in what we would see as being a dud deal. Though firstborn, he would serve the younger. And God decreed that. So he's saying, I loved and I hated. It's this uh, expression, expression of faithful love. Yeah. But we might have to dig into that at a different time. Yeah. We've got one. I'm sure there's lots more questions. And then I've got two that have come in that we'll, we'll deal with those ones quickly and then finish up. Okay. Thanks, Nancy. Hello. <laughs> okay, so say before my time, I was predestined to either be, be a follower or not. Mm. And say I'm born, I want to be a follower, but just say I'm not predestined. How do I know? Because I keep sinning and... I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm not predestined. Yep. Maybe God, you know, and so is it my fault then if I want to be, but I can't because I keep sinning mm. or, you know, like it's he... You know, yeah, yeah I, I think I understand what you're saying. And thank you for asking that question because I think that's, that's one that really gets down to the crux of it. And I think a lot of Christians have felt that at one time or another, uh, that, hang on. I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but oh, I keep sinning. Maybe, maybe I'm not elect, maybe I'm not predestined. Um, the Bible is really, really clear that we, we could not love God and submit humbly to Jesus if he hadn't done that work in, in our heart. So, so the, the, the evidence of him doing that work in us is that we do it. So the, the, the evidence that we have a regenerate heart is that we do love Jesus and we do turn to him in repentance. Doesn't mean we're sinless because we're still in these bodies of death, but our general life pattern is that we keep coming back to Jesus. And if we keep coming back to Jesus in repentance and faith and trust, we, we can have this amazing confidence that God has done this work in you. And that's actually what Paul says. He, he, he speaks to Paul. Yes, he's an apostle, but he's not seeing into people's hearts. He's writing a letter to the Thessalonians and he says, God shows you. Paul says that with conviction and authority to Christians. He doesn't, he's probably never met half these people, but he says, if, you're, if you love Jesus and you've put your faith in him, God's got you. He shows you. That is the evidence that he's done this. And so that can then give us confidence to keep, keep pushing, pushing in. Yeah. Sorry, we won't have time to, to deal with all these. And I've just got a couple more that I, I will deal with. Um, uh, one, one, that, one that came in um, uh, really helpfully. So if we're talking to someone about God who hasn't heard about Jesus and we tell them that God has a plan and a purpose for you and he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you, would that be incorrect theology? Uh, I think that's a great question. I'm going to say, I'm really happy to say that to somebody because uh, God does have a plan and a purpose for you. And he does want to have a, have a relationship with you. We don't know people's hearts. That's the parable of the sower. We don't know how people will respond. We don't know who God has chosen. Um, so we offer the invite to everyone. But we're going to sing now because I think that will be a great way to respond. But don't worry, I'm not running away. I'll be here over dinner. I'll hang down here. You can come and keep grilling me. So up you come, musos, and we'll respond. <laughs>